0: to give you all the tools that can be handled in a, like, in a two-week period. And then you can choose from those tools. You can choose which ones you actually want to use more or less. And the choice should be not the one I like better, Because that's always the one one can do anyway, the one one likes. But the choice should apply to that which one feels one needs to develop more. If one is constantly in one's life, in one's uh, um, business life maybe, in one's professional life I should say, confronted with death a lot, one may have already contemplated one's own death. One may already have come to a conclusion about it and have a quite a comfortable feeling about it. and But another person may never have even thought about it that they themselves are going to die too, or if they did think about it, try to forget it as quickly as possible. So then that's an important thing to contemplate. Um, now we're going to do a loving-kindness contemplation, not a meditation, but a contemplation, and... If one feels that that is something one really needs to develop more, well then that tool can be used. So what I'm doing is giving you as many tools as I think you can handle, and uh, then you choose from them with that viewpoint in mind, the one you need to develop more. Everybody has certain uh, capacities and also some certain deficiencies, we're all not Totally even in our capacities and deficiencies, and we only ourselves are the judge of that. So, the difference I'll just make it clear maybe once more the difference between our nightly loving kindness meditation and the difference and the different one we're going to do now, which is the loving kindness contemplation. In the loving kindness meditation, we try through the trigger of words and thoughts to develop a feeling and then use that feeling as the meditation subject. It's a very one-pointed affair. The words and thoughts are the trigger. Now if the feeling doesn't come up, then the words and thoughts will have to suffice because if we use them often enough and long enough, the feeling will develop. In the loving-kindness contemplation, we take a statement, which I'll make, and you can repeat it, please, after me again, and use that statement to investigate within ourselves whether we have any of those deficiencies or abilities, whatever the case may be, and how can we develop more of the positive and eliminate more of the negative. It's an introspection again, an introspection which refers to our emotional um, purity. So it's also one-pointed, but one-pointed in introspection, and not and one-pointed towards the feeling that one gets. I think that would probably make it clear enough. Is that clear? Hmm,
1: clear? Clear?
0: Right. In order to get started, please put the attention on the breath for a moment. Please repeat after me. May I be free from enmity. May I be free from enmity. Now here the introspection is like this, that we find out whether we have any hate, aggression, dislike, feelings of being an enemy, or feelings of having enemies within whether we've had them, whether they still arise, and find out whether that is to our own well-being and others' well-being, and find out within ourselves, are we determined to let go of that? What's the best way? How are we going to do it? May I be free from hurtfulness. May I be free
1: from hurtfulness.
0: Now here we inquire into ourselves whether we have in the past or are still sometimes hurting other living beings. Now this thing is physical, emotional, both ways. And If we find any of that in ourselves, and we could also be hurting ourselves, then is it beneficial? Do we want to eliminate it? How do we go about it? What is our best position within ourselves to not have hurtfulness? The opposite is harmlessness. How do we encourage and develop that? May I be free from troubles of mind and body May
1: I be free from troubles of mind and
0: body Now here we can introspect, inquire are we having any troubles of mind or body If we have troubles of the body does it affect the mind does it get troubled What can we do to keep the mind in an even and calm state, without being troubled by worry and fear, by hopes and desires, by anger and resistance. How do we keep it in a calm state where it has an underlying feeling of being at ease, not dis-ease? May I be able to protect my own happiness?
1: May I be able to protect my own happiness?
0: Now this is an important introspection investigation what constitutes my own happiness. Am I dependent for my happiness on outside factors, on other people? Am I dependent on my senses, or have I been able to develop an inner happiness which is independent? And if I have any of that, how do I protect it? If I'm dependent, how can I protect it then? May all, be free from enmity. May all beings be free from enmity. Now, having looked into ourselves and recognized the danger and the unrest that enmity creates, we wish the lack of it, the elimination of it for everyone else. And having found a way, possibly, of doing it for ourselves, we may be able to share that with others. If not, then we have that sincere wish for others to recognize the thing within themselves as we may have done. May all, beings be free from hurtfulness.
1: May all beings be free from hurtfulness.
0: Now again he applies the same thing as I've just said. And we can actually direct our thoughts towards beings whom we know, people whom we know, or people in general, or in a certain area, those who may be just being hurt or are hurting and have that very strong wish that they may recognize how detrimental it is to their own well-being because we have recognized that already wishing everyone to see harmlessness to be the only way to live in peace with oneself and others. May our beings be free from troubles of mind and body.
1: May our beings be free from troubles of mind and body.
0: What we're wishing for ourselves, we wish for others. And if we can find a way of actualizing, making this wish actually true, then we could share that understanding. In any case, we can have that feeling of unity with other people and direct our thoughts again to those we know, to those we don't know, or anyone in particular, or many, wishing them to have that freedom. May all beings be able to protect their own happiness. May all beings be able to protect their own happiness. Now, if we wish that for others, obviously we will not disturb other people's happiness. Whether we agree with their outlook or not has no bearing on that. We have a distinct and sincere and deep-seated conviction that their happiness contributes to our own, because we are in this together. So what we wish for ourselves is the same that we wish for them. Buddha often compared his teaching to wading into the ocean first one stands on the sand at the beach and one is quite dry and then one wades into the ocean and it's a very gradual wetting of the body because as a gradual decline in the depth first the feet get wet and as one goes a little further it goes deeper up to the knees, then maybe up to the waist, to the shoulders, and if one goes on and on and on, one may completely submerge oneself in the ocean. In the same way, his teaching is a graduated teaching. One first has some of it at one's disposal and can practice it and gently and slowly One goes deeper and deeper, until one is fully submerged in it. And this is a way he usually gave his discourses, and so he does in this one also. There's many of them that have exactly that same quality. It starts out with the situation where we're at now, and gently and gradually He leads the questioner, or the listeners, on towards more and more purification, which in the same sense also have the sense of the water, because water purifies, until one can one day be fully submerged in it. So, in order to recapitulate, I'd like to just put together once more what has happened in this discourse so far, as far as the teaching goes, and is really relating to us, or can be related to us. In the first instance, we have someone who is a very worldly person, a king, ask what could possibly be the usefulness, the fruitfulness of leading this rather renunciate and seemingly unproductive life. Now, if we haven't been asked that question yet, we may yet have, have it happen to us. Very few people that, who are known to be meditators and living a somewhat different life from other people are not getting asked this question by people who supposedly live very productive lives, making money and uh, doing a lot of things. So this is a very um, normal question. And then we hear about the answers that the same person has been given by six other teachers. Now we hear that all the time, constantly. We hear about other teachers. He said that and she said this and is this right and is this wrong and so on and so forth. But what is actually happening here in this sutta we're being told about the doctrine that each of those six teachers hold. So we have a certain doctrine concerning cause and effect, and most of them say it doesn't exist. Now this is in total contradistinction to the Buddhist teaching, which is often called a teaching of cause and effect. So that sort of effectively negates those teachers. They are in the scholars' minds, and we must be grateful to the scholars who have translated these discourses for us, because otherwise all of us would have to learn Pali. And before even getting near any of the words of the Buddha, you'd have to know Pali perfectly. So we can be very grateful to the scholars who have translated that for us. And in their minds there are, of course, scholarly questions. And one of them, concerning this sutra, so there are many questions in the scholar's mind. I happen to know the one who translated this one very well. One of the questions he has in his mind and has also mentioned in the translation is whether this is actually part of the discourse. The Um, explanation about the other teachers whether this is not a a later addition and uh, it's quite possible but those teachers were contemporaries of the Buddha and this particular discourse is held in the last five years or last seven years of the Buddha's life so they had all been around those teachers and it's not uninteresting to hear what they have to say because we have today also many teachers with many different views and some of them we may even think are quite pleasant because they are a little easier to hang on to than purifying oneself. And then comes the next question. So, after he has talked about that, the king, what do you say to the Buddha? And then the Buddha says, well, the first thing that you could see, king, is that your might would not extend to someone who's got a spiritual life. He would be outside of your jurisdiction. You couldn't have any taxes from him because he wouldn't be making any money and you wouldn't be able to order him around because he has a different kind of order that he listens to. Again, that was quite applicable that it means not to be concerned with too much of a business life where one is constantly dependent upon other, people, other people's um, agreements, their pleasure, their, sometimes even their fraud. So one has great problems. And we sometimes hear of people who are extremely rich. They get into the newspapers and on television. Not so long ago it was here in Australia also. I think one of the richest men. The kind of problems they get Just out of the fact that they're making more and more money. Now, obviously, that doesn't apply to us. We are not multi millionaires, or maybe somebody's been hiding it from us. But business is not exactly peaceful. So, that is the first aspect that is being addressed, and then the morality. So, in that, the, the the second aspect which is being addressed is the fact that we can have an, an understanding of the teaching even though we may not have been able to do it ourselves and gain confidence. Now that appears to be, in this particular explanation, a very important point. And it's not only in this discourse. In the um, transcendental depend arising, which is an essential discourse of the Buddha, it is also the second step. Sorry, the third step. And here too, it is exactly that. It is the third step. The first two were, first there were employees that slaves and then there's the householder and they don't, no longer under the jurisdiction of the king and then the third step, hearing the Dhamma and gaining confidence in it that confidence which opens the heart which one has to yet prove oneself that it is so, but the confidence which means one is willing to try and then The aspect of one's conduct, which goes further for a spiritually inclined person who wants to lead a true spiritual life, that conduct to go further than just the bare minimum of the five precepts, namely into protection and the um, care one takes about one's own contact with the world that contact that one has to be first of all in the body in action totally without violence harmless and with as little as possible connected to the marketplace a marketplace where one has to barter where one has to make profit or loss, as little as possible with that. And then that's the bodily action. And the other bodily action, which includes the harmlessness, includes even not hurting the environment. I think this is a very interesting point. Because now, two and a half thousand years later, it finally dawned on us that this is very important, because if the environment dies, we're going to die with it. Buddha said that two and a half thousand years ago. And we can see it in writing. I mean he didn't prophesy anything. He just said, "Don't hurt it, because it's going to hurt you." And then the speech where we are protective of the kind of conversation we hold so that we do not get caught in all the negativities which are possible and on all the desiring, desiring aspects which are possible for our um, speech to touch upon. We can touch upon many things which will bring hate of greed to our minds. For so watching the speech. And in both instances, speech and action, the kind of livelihood that we have, the kind of action that we take to make a living, and the kind of uh, words which are necessary to do this. And then, as a the third aspect, to watch the mind, that it does not have the kind of thought processes which will bring about the detrimental speech and action. Detrimental, not because they are actually of any kind of um, crime or anything like that, but detrimental to a meditator. Now, some meditators who are extremely sensitive know this and are very protective of themselves to the point of being overprotective. We can't do that either. The world is there. We've got to live with it. We are part of it. We have to find a balance. But within that world there is a possibility to go along in a manner which makes it easier for us to meditate. In other words, if we meditate, and we even have a good meditation, and then we go out and start dancing, singing, and having a and watching a show, the next meditation is going to be dreadful. And the same applies to going out and having, um, well, watching the war on television. That just doesn't help the meditation. And we can't stop it by watching it on television we have much more chance of doing anything about it if we have total peace in our own heart and mind and with that peacefulness try to have that feeling of peacefulness for other people. We have far more of a chance of doing anything about it than (coughs) becoming imbued with its horrors. So changing from being interested in the negative parts of human life to the positive parts. So our physical actions to protect ourselves from those that would hurt meditation, same applies to our speech and to our thoughts. And we ourselves must become the judge of that, what is helpful and what is hurtful for our meditation. And specifically we can do that when we've had some good meditations. Because if we haven't had any good meditation we don't even know what it's like, we don't know what's hurtful to it, because it's always like that. But when we've had some good meditation, otherwise we've been able to get into the absorption. And then all of a sudden we can't. What happened? And then just go back over the way one has been leading one's life. One needn't have done anything which is um, considered evil or bad. One just hasn't protected oneself enough. So if one recognizes the fact that the meditative path which brings one into spiritual growth is more important than all the other stuff which is available, then one needs to abstain from certain things and restrain one's... um, participation in them. And this is what the Buddha is telling the king, that this is a a benefit one has, where the mind doesn't get so engaged in outside matters, so that there is a feeling of inner serenity and happiness. And this is actually, in many of the suttas, the fourth step before any meditation, namely, to have a certain inner joy, which makes meditation possible. Obviously, we like to meditate to get inner joy, but it works both ways. First we have a bit, and then we get more. So we feel at ease about ourselves, because we have nothing to blame ourselves for, we have no remorse or regrets, and we get a bit of inner happiness, because we have not been touched by a lot of negativities, nor have we done anything or thought anything or said anything which we would later regret. The next step that we have already discussed was contentment. Contentment with little which means not searching for luxury and then guarding one's senses. Now the next step that he tells to the king is one which recurs over and over again. And it is so important that even though you have heard it from me before, it has to be reiterated in all its details, mindfulness. The mindfulness which we will now try and practice outside of the meditation, because it's the only way that it will ever become a habit and will support our meditation. This is the next step that he tells to the king, that this is um, another fruit of, being, of leading a spiritual life. And the fruit itself, he it doesn't even address so much. What he says is that it is, and he says that many times, the only way. For the purification of beings, we can also say the one way. We don't have to say the only way. It's a one way. And I think that's a better translation. Ekayana means the one way. For the purification of beings, why is that the one way for the purification of beings? It's quite logical and totally um, rational. If we are not mindful, if we are not aware of what goes on in ourselves, we couldn't possibly change it. We can only change what we've got solidly in hand. So if we haven't got that introspection into ourselves to know what's happening, there's no hope for any change. So the first spot is mindfulness. But there's another reason why it's purification, because as long as we're totally mindful, we can't be negative. Now you may have already noticed that, Possibly, for instance, in the walking meditation. If you're really watching the six-fold movement, the world falls away. The world has nothing to offer at that time. There's nothing there. So what is it? It's a totally pure awareness and pure being. The same if you're really on the breath. The world's gone. Nothing's happening. No positive, no negative, but pure awareness, pure being. And if we really get in touch one day, and there's no reason why we shouldn't, with pure being inside, inside of us, we will get to know that pure being, which has no connotation of negative or positive, of wanting or not wanting, It just is that that is exactly what we've always wanted, exactly what underlying all our efforts and endeavors is where we were going to, that we just didn't know how to get there, and that we actually took enormous journeys to get where we were anyway. We've been traveling everywhere in our mind instead of just standing still and getting to where we were. But we can be there. And mindfulness is the one thing that is of the greatest importance. Without it, we won't even get an inkling. Mindfulness is that pure, one-pointed attention. Now, obviously, we need it in meditation. But if we don't practice any of it, outside of meditation. Now the support system for meditation is actually what the Buddha is describing. We still have quite a number of things to find out about until we get to the first step in meditation. He hasn't even mentioned the word yet. He hasn't mentioned anything about it yet. So what he's giving here to the king is the whole graduated pathway and all of it needs to be supportive of our meditation. Now, with mindfulness we have something that is so essential that we can't possibly um, overestimate the importance. We only have the one mind and if we try to make two out of it, it doesn't work. Namely, the one that sits here and tries to get concentrated and be really mindful, which means one pointed attention to the breath, and the other one that thinks about anything it wants while it goes outside of this room. It just doesn't work. So, we've got to have a system. And this is where the Buddhist teaching is unique. There are many spiritual teachings. And if we, for instance, compare just for a second the achievements of the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages they came to exactly the same conclusion as the Buddha no difference namely that there was nobody there but the systematic step-by-step instruction is unique to the Buddha and this systematic step-by-step instruction is for those people who really want to do it. Most of us are not spiritual geniuses that can figure it out themselves. Having that step-by-step instruction is the most valuable thing that we can possibly get, and because of that, we need to really pay attention to it and do it step-by-step. Sometimes this happens to probably many that we do do one step and then recognize that we left one out and go back and do that one. It's a sort of recognition of not having attended to something along the line of maybe confidence or maybe along the line of speech or along the line of paying attention with one's senses too much to outward things, whatever it may be, one has already started one's path on mindfulness, but has to go back and do something else, it's quite all right, doesn't matter, doesn't matter at all, it doesn't have, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, it doesn't have to be now, I've got to do perfect, be perfect in this one first before I may tackle the next one. That's not the way it is. It's a whole set of instructions. And wherever one practices, one will then notice where one still has to practice. Anyone who takes it seriously finds that. So it isn't necessarily like a ladder, although in the end it comes to that. It is more like maybe... Um, 20 lane highway on which we have a chance to go along one of the lanes and then another lane and then if we recognize that we've left one lane out completely, well we have to start a little further back and do that one too Mindfulness has four parts and if we translate it literally that's interesting too it means memory but we don't usually translate it as memory, although that's part of it. We say, we also use the word attention, one-pointedness, conscience, conscientiousness, conscientious, yes, conscientiousness. And it has been translated, and this is the most common translation, because it appears to have Many of those connotations all in one, mindfulness. The mind is full of that particular one thing which is truly happening. Now, when you watch the breath, we cannot watch the past one. And we cannot watch the future one. We've got to watch this one. So what do we learn? We learn to be here now. And if we don't learn to be here now, we'll never live. Because life in the past is a garbled memory, and life in the future is an unfulfilled hope. But it's not life. Life is an experience now, this moment. And if we can do that, we learn to be mindful. And all of you have had your attention on the breath for some time. You've always had, you all have had your attention on the movement on the foot. So you know what it means to be here now. That's all there is to it. And if the mind has an understanding of the fact that the past is long gone and the future yet to come and none of it really matters because the one who experienced the past is not the one who's sitting here now. That person is also long gone. And the one who's going to experience the future is also not the one who's sitting here now, because that one is also going to be different, at least older, hopefully wiser. So, the one that's sitting here now is the only one that can live that moment. Life is this moment. And if you've given any attention to impermanence since you've been here, and you certainly have had so many different Um, tools given to you already then you will know that this person that's sitting there is in constant flux so which one do we want to pay attention to the fluctuating one that's going to be the fluctuating one that used to be there's only one that we can pay any attention to that's the one that is this moment and the moment is already gone flux but it's the only one that is there to be mindful of so we have all these um, translations for the word sati sati is the Pali word s-a-t-i very nice easy word for letter word Um, and we'll stick to mindfulness but we will also remember that it means memory because we remember what to do now the first instance of mindfulness is to do with the body not only because it's the simplest the simplest because it's to be touched and to be seen you can actually see when the foot moves and you can actually feel when the breath moves so There is no worry about, is this really happening? We can be totally connected to the happening of the body. Buddha said, who is not mindful of the body will never enter into the deathless. The deathless is another word for Nibbāna. Now again, with the instructions that we've heard about, about morality, we have the first instance of the bodily action. If we don't have mindfulness, we cannot possibly keep those instructions or even attempt to because we won't remember it. We won't remember what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. And we also won't notice that the physical action of violence, the physical action of going out somewhere, um, of bartering, of making profit, all these things, these physical actions, are to our detriment. We won't even notice it. So that is the first step. But the second step is what we can now do here. Because obviously we're not going to go out dancing, singing at the moment, are we? We're going to stay right here. So we can actually do something. And this is the most important thing. And this is why the teaching is unique. It's the most practical teaching there is. And it has immediate results. While we're here, in a controlled environment, which means that we don't have any outer interference other than what's obviously necessary, like eating and sleeping and washing and going to the toilet and all those things which are necessary, <coughs> but it's the most controlled environment that one can possibly get, and it's a very good and lovely environment, We must take this opportunity to establish ourselves in mindfulness of the body. Which means watching each movement. Watching ourselves when we stand up, when we walk. Not walking meditation, that's something else again. When we walk, when we open the door, put the hand on the door handle, turning, pulling walking through going further maybe going to the bathroom sitting down on the toilet doing one's business, getting up again, going to wash oneself, going to the meal, sitting pulling the chair out, sitting down, getting the plate, putting the fork into the food lifting the fork putting it into the mouth Chewing, tasting, swallowing, and again. At this stage, I love to tell the story, which some of you have heard probably three times or four times already, of the Zen master who lived together with some of his students. And after they had been living together for some years, one of the students said to the Zen master, Sir, you say you are enlightened. But what makes you different from us? And the Zen master said, When I eat, I eat, and when I sleep, I sleep. The student said, But sir, I do exactly that. And the Zen master said, When unenlightened people eat, they think a thousand thoughts. When unenlightened people sleep, they dream a thousand dreams. But when I eat, I eat, and when I sleep, I sleep. So you can check out the eating bit and see whether that's true. There's nothing to think about. There's nothing to think about like, I wonder what the recipe is, and uh, they actually do make nice food here, and uh, if I did see the cook, she looks like a nice person, or um, I don't like rice, or I don't like beans, I wish they had potatoes instead. Whatever it is that the mind says, no. Putting it into the mouth, chewing Tasting, swallowing, putting the fork into the food, putting it into the mouth, chewing, tasting, swallowing. That's all. That's all there is to eating. That's mindfulness of eating. Now we've got many things we're doing with the body. Become aware of the fact how much the body does. Now obviously we're we're physically totally inactive here. I don't mean, we are neither digging trenches, nor are we planting trees, nor are we painting walls, nor are we doing nothing. And yet the body does a lot. Watch it. Become aware of it. And also, become aware of the fact that the body finds it very difficult to be still. Why? Because the mind isn't still. Now, even at night, when we have the most expensive mattress and are fast asleep, the body still moves. Why? Because it feels discomfort, which signals to the sleeping mind, and so the mind signals back, move. Discomfort all the time, in any position, no matter
1: what it is.
0: Now, of course, some positions are more uncomfortable than others, obviously, but there aren't any comfortable ones. Check it out. There just isn't. The body always has discomfort. Now, sometimes it takes a little longer to have discomfort. So what can we do about that? Make the mind comfortable. That's the only thing where we can actually have some influence. The body is as it is. Sure, we can take care of it the best way we know how, and most people do know, but the mind can be made comfortable. So we can notice that, too, when we become aware of bodily action. But there's another thing that we become aware of, and this is a very important thing. It is the first step into insight. Knowing that mind and body are two. They're interdependent, but they're not the same. The body breathes, and the mind watches. It's impossible for the mind to breathe and for the body to watch. It just doesn't go. They both have their functions. The body walks, and what does the mind do? It tells the body to do that. Now, in your next walking meditation, when you have, again, an opportunity to do walking meditation, please pay attention to that fact, namely, the intention in the mind. You've got to be really slow. You may have to even slow down more in the walking meditation to become aware of the fact that the mind says, Walk. Do it in six steps. No, that wasn't right. Come on, try again. That was only five. Try that again. I'd better, I better now count that. Now, stand still. Turn around. And then the mind says, Oh, I've had enough of this. this and then the body stops, because the mind has said, I've had enough of this. body stands still. but it doesn't keep walking. The minute the mind says, I've had enough of this, the body stands quite still, doing nothing. Now watch that. Make yourself so slow. It doesn't matter. I mean, there's nowhere to go. We've got nowhere to go anyway. Make it so slow that you notice this mind giving all these orders to the body. And then the body doing automatically can't do anything else What exactly what the mind said. Now, that gives one that first step into real insight which we will discuss more, of course, because there are nine steps there which show us what these two factors are with which we are confronted now obviously we say well look you know if I've got a pain in the body my mind doesn't like it that's right the mind reacts to it but it's not the mind that's hurting it's the body that's hurting and the mind's reacting so just have a look in the walking meditation with this you can call it anything you want it is basically mindfulness watching intently how we operate the more we watch intently the easier it is to know ourselves to know the universe and to get to the bottom of absolute reality as long as we don't know that we live in relative reality In relative reality, we're all separate people, and all have our separate um, likes and dislikes, all our separate um, lives, but in absolute reality it looks entirely different. Watching intently means being objective towards oneself. No longer that subjectivity, this is me and look at poor me, or look at great me, or whatever it is that we happen to have taken on for the moment. It just happened. And then, when we look at ourselves objectively, it's very easy to make a change. If we look at a negative thought subjectively, we believe it. If we look at it objectively, we'll change it. So here, we start out with our mindfulness of the body. And that has its implication in our two meditation uh, methods, the watching of the breath and the walking meditation and as far as the breath meditation is concerned, if there's any difficulty in becoming concentrated I'll just say that as a general instruction now it's also helpful to watch the beginning, middle and end of the breath which again slows the mind down because it's got to be more detailed. If you are perfectly concentrated, don't worry about it. But if there's any difficulty, watch beginning, middle, end. Namely, this is mindfulness of body. How the breath comes in and has a beginning in, in and out. breath. In both there's a beginning. And then there is a sort of little time where it seems like now I'm breathing, and then it's finished. And then the whole thing starts again. It's very detailed, and it can be extremely helpful to get the concentration fixed. Well, that's what it has to be one, one day, fixed concentration. It's something like that six-point movement in the walking meditation. Here's a three-point movement in the breath. And if you like, you can count one, two, three, if that's helpful. Two, three, one, two, three. then let that go, because it becomes very mm-hmm. mechanical, this counting. Eventually, one has to let the counting go. If it's necessary, it's all right to use it, but after a while, to let go of it. This is another way of getting the concentration. Now, a breath meditation, which is... One of the which is sorry, which is the first thing the Buddha mentions in the discourse on mindfulness, as the mindfulness on the body. He talks about the breath meditation, so the very first thing he mentions. He mentions this aspect of it, but he also mentions the aspect of and it's another suggestion that I'm now giving you, if the concentration is still very. Um, haphazard, to have the breath, using the breath to calm the body. Now that sounds a bit um, uh, difficult, but it's actually quite simple. What it means is that we actually become aware of either in the body or we can actually be aware of outside the body. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be the sensation, but the rhythm of breathing is usually fairly even. We don't breathe. then, you know, We usually don't do that. We usually have a very even breathing. Everybody does. It's very always more or less the same. And as we have this even breathing, we watch this rhythm and we watch it as we become aware of it, all through the body, doesn't not meaning sensation. It just means the rhythm, and we can actually watch it as an like around the body. That would be the word around the body, or within the body. That rhythm itself can be extremely calming, and can help very much if there's difficulty becoming concentrated and it usually takes a few days to get concentrated because the world has just too much impact on the mind there's just too much going on and most people don't know that they need to protect themselves and even those who know that they need to don't know how and it just is a world which is so full of contact for us through our senses that the mind has difficulty getting to a quiet place. So these are things that he mentions in his uh, discourse on mindfulness, where he starts out with the body, and these are instructions for using the breath. Now, the other instruction, which causes us getting to the calm state, the other instruction I've already mentioned to you, to get to the inside, because watching the breath brings both. Is watching its impermanence, seeing how it comes and how it goes. And this is now also a suggestion. If the mind is wild and unruly, and there are certain times of the day when some people can meditate better than at other times. Now, some people are better in the morning, some are better in the evening, and some can't meditate after lunch. If that's the case, and the mind doesn't want to be calm, watch the impermanence of the breath. That is to go away from trying to be calm, which isn't happening anyway, to trying to understand this flux which exists in us as the only reality which cannot be changed. That is a reality, constant flux. With that constant flux we can see that in the breath and from that you may find that the mind likes to investigate whether there's anything that's solid, unchanging, in oneself. Do it. Investigate. Find it. Find anything that... Either find that everything is constantly changing and in flux, or find that you have something that you think is solid. If you find something that's solid, let me know about it. This is a very... um, can be very helpful when the mind feels, uh, well, either agitated or sleepy, or not inclined towards calm. It doesn't always have the same inclinations. And since it isn't fully trained, and only the other hand, the fully enlightened mind is fully trained, It has its ups and downs, and it has its likes and dislikes. And maybe it doesn't like mornings or evenings, or maybe it doesn't like when it's warm or whatever. So give it that to do. As far as outside of the meditation, now these are um, three things regarding meditation. I hope you can remember all that. That's also mindfulness. Can you remember all that?
1: you mind repeating them?
0: No, I don't mind at all. would <laughs> much rather repeat it than have you completely forget it. The first one was the suggestion of using the three-point movement of the breath. Beginning, middle, end. On in and out. Breath. End counting one two three one two three until that is no longer necessary the counting similar to the six point movement I gave you in the walking meditation it can be extremely helpful to gain concentration but I said already and I'll say that again that while the concentrated meditation goes in the same direction for everyone the methods are individually different because we all have our different inclinations, tendencies and environment to deal with, character characteristics, so that we have to find that which is best for us. If you have found what's best for you, don't change. If you're not totally concentrated, try. So that's one suggestion. Second one was, to use a rhythm of the breath which is something that's very uh, even. Sorry, very even. It's always the same rhythm. And watch that rhythm as it actually penetrates the body. There's a rhythm in this breathing. You can do that rhythm penetration inside the body or around the body. Either way can be very helpful. That was the second one. And the third one is, third one, third suggestion. If the mind is not quiet, doesn't like to do anything, just sits there being unruly, tries to think up new ideas what to do next week when one finally has some possibility to do something again or anything like that, go for insight. Watch first the impermanence of the breath. How... Our life depends on a bit of wind that's got to come in and go out again and again and again. And if it should ever not come in or not go out, in other words, get stuck on the in or get stuck on the out, we're dead. Become aware of it. Don't just believe it. Notice it. You can even hold your breath for a moment and see how well that feels. After a while, it feels pretty awful. The same when you hold the out breath. So watch that, and from that, the mind may quite um, spontaneously want to investigate what other, what else there is inside of oneself, whether that is impermanent and changing, or whether there's anything solid to be found. And that is a very important investigation and can be done as a meditation because if the mind is not getting calm it's much better to do that instead of getting unhappy about it, frustrated about it or um, even angry at oneself or just sitting there thinking oh, I'll never do this. But do that instead. So these are three suggestions for the meditation. Now, outside of the meditation, I've already given you the suggestions, but the main thing there to use mindfulness is to actually become aware of each movement that we make. And just the physical movement, nothing else. And the mind becomes quite unperturbed about that because the mind doesn't have anything else to attend to at the time of the movement, so it becomes unperturbed. And if one has an unperturbed mind, and the Buddha talks about that a lot, imperturbability it's called, when he talks about unperturbed mind, it is one of the factors which is most conducive to meditation. A perturbed mind is like a cauldron of uh, boiling water. Whereas an unperturbed mind is cool and refreshing. Mindfulness will do it, watching. And if you establish yourself in the habit, while you're here, of that physical mindfulness, you will see that you have an immediate fruit of the spiritual path, never mind the meditation now. The immediate fruit is that with a mind which feels calm and at ease because of this basic attention to physical action everything else that one has to do is much easier does not perturb the mind at all because one is totally focused on that one thing. One doesn't worry about the results of it because one is totally focused on doing it and only then can peace arise As long as we have any kind of wish for a result, our mind wavers between the actual doing and the result I'm going to get. In other words, dukkha because there's a desire. I want a good result. So, in a very mundane, everyday life, to have established oneself in physical mindfulness brings the ability with it that the mind remains unperturbed no matter what we do that we don't look for the results and therefore can act much better are far more efficient do not worry about the other things which need to be done because we are right there with the one thing and therefore can get them all done so we have an harmonious flow of action and not a perturbed kind of um, turmoil of where we don't know which one to do first and should this one be done and aren't we going to do it? Now, maybe I'll do it later. Now, that too will disappear. I will talk about those hindrances uh, uh, later. That's our procrastination. That too doesn't happen. Because if one is strictly focused on what one is doing, the mind has not a chance to procrastinate. The mind's not engaged in anything. It's watching what one is actually doing. So, therefore, one has mundane, worldly benefits immediately. There is no greater advantage than having this kind of everyday mindfulness. And it is, of course, the uh, support system for the meditation because if you want to meditate then at home and uh, have used mindfulness for a great part of the day I will not say for the whole day because only the Arahant is able to do that I don't think anyone else can do that, be mindful the whole day, but a great part of the day then you will see also that the meditation can flourish without it the meditation is um, hit or miss And mindfulness can become a habit. So this time here, where we are really undisturbed, would be the best possible time to establish that. And if you want to walk slower, well, by all means, do it. Nobody cares. Who cares whether you walk slow or fast or medium? It doesn't matter. Everybody's supposed to meditate for themselves and be mindful for themselves. So whatever you do, it doesn't really matter. You just try to become aware of this body, how it acts. Now then, there's another thing that you will notice. I've already mentioned the fact that the mind gives the orders. You will notice that. Particularly if you do it in the walking meditation, it's much easier there to see the intention. But you will also notice another thing, that every movement that you make, has to be impermanent. Otherwise, we would um, all freeze to a salt pillar. It's got to be impermanent. So watch that too. Not only are we dependent for our life on an impermanent piece of, a bit of wind, no, anything we do, it's totally impermanent. And when you watch this more and more, there comes a feeling that is different from the one you had so far about yourself it changes now when you go outside and I have an intention an idea to have an outside meditation this afternoon I just want to look around for a place where it's shady because it's not good to meditate in the sun even when it's not hot it's not good, so it takes energy away When you are outside and you're watching you're walking or whatever it is you're doing and you think that's right, that's impermanent. At that time the mind might spontaneously also go in mindfulness to the things around you and see how impermanent they are too. Now there is always that possibility. Mindfulness internal and external. Both. Both are valid, the internal one, meaning for oneself has to be the first one, but mindfulness external is equally important because then we will feel ourselves more part of the whole, part of this creation and not so separate and alienated. Each one in their little cubicles with locked doors and locked windows when one goes out and, and uh, locked hearts the alienation between each person is from that misunderstanding that we are separate entities but if you watch the impermanence of your own breath wind, of your own movements you will see the impermanence of the wind how it ch- uh, changes the leaves around the movement and the wind itself how it goes like this and then stops and it goes again. And you will see the impermanence in the dead leaves and the live leaves and, the, and the, all the um, intermediate states any, anything is in. It's a very helpful way of looking at one's environment so that one feels more part of it. Now there are other things to do to feel more part of it and I will talk about them Tonight, we are all meditative um, ways. They are not only designed to feel part of the environment, obviously. They are designed to gain insight. But this is one step on the way, that the environment is totally the same as we are. And we are the same as the environment. So the uh, insight has that as a, a stepping stone. Enough. Any questions?
1: When uh, I was meditating, my back was giving me pain. Now, I observed that and it's moved away. So I was wondering is it my mind that's saying, righto, you don't want to meditate, don't have a pain instead? Or was it actually actually a pain which then my mind observed?
0: Catch-22. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't have a clue. You may have a bad back. <laughs> have you? <laughs> well, it moves. Oh, sore, I
1: saw
0: mean, Sorry? When I observe that pain, yeah, then, if, if wound, yes. then it goes away. Yes. Yes. It ha- uh, pain has that uh, um, quality. If you put your full attention on it, it is quite possible that it seems to dissolve. And then when you take your attention off it and you become not totally attentive to something else, that it reoccurs. Now, if it isn't a physical problem at all, if you have never had that physical problem before, it could very well be that the mind is tense. Tension creates contraction. Tension and contraction are the two same things. And the contraction feels painful. But the minute you put your mind on that contraction, it dissolves. So that is quite possible. If you haven't got that before. So watch the mind whether it has tension. And the tension which arises in meditation is usually, I want to be concentrated. I want a result. And I want it now. And I'm not going to wait till tomorrow. And I came all the way here and I'm going to do it. And that's tension because you're looking for a result. Drop the whole thing. There's nothing to get. Meditation means getting rid of everything. Just be there and let the breath come and go. And use any of those suggestions I've made now if you think they might be helpful. Try them out. But don't try to get. Try to let go. Which is actually the theme song of spiritual life. Letting go any other yes uh, because of your, your uh,
2: mentioning that, and that how well adjusted we were we would always have about 50, 50 or 60, 40 of pleasure and pain um, I looked very differently at a um, I have fairly severe pain in my knee quite often when I'm sitting and because I'm reasonably concentrated I mostly find, when I looked at it after what you were talking about I mostly find that I try to get back to the breath and become more concentrated and in that way the pain disappears and that's what I've discovered has been my practice but in the last sit I didn't do that because I decided that because you said We've got to be able to accept at least 40% of unpersonally feeling because it's going to be there all the time. I wondered whether I could be neutral towards the pain that was there. And actually, because I'd worked out in a logical sort of way that there was no point in trying all the time to be positive about it because to be positive about the pain is, is in a way wanting it to be 100% good all the time. So I thought that if I was neutral about it and was able to let it be there it would be a different way and it was a very different experience. I was able to actually let the pain be there and be fairly neutral about it.
0: And still be able to get back to the breath?
2: No, I just actually sat for the rest of the
0: session With the pain. With the pain. yeah but Did you accept the pain? Now you see, this is the acceptance. The pain is already um, that's already our perceiving see the way it works is like this I think I have already said that but I will say it again it doesn't matter because we do have bad memories of us Um, the first thing is the sense contact in this case it's a sitting position unpleasant uh, the strange way of sitting and the next thing is a feeling which in this case is unpleasant unpleasant feeling. And the next step is the perception which says pain. So, in order to actually be contented, that is already unnecessary. That word, that perceiving word, the the labeling is already unnecessary. Unpleasant feeling, that's all that's necessary. And, so, unpleasant feeling. Now, were you able to do that? Just Just unpleasant? Yes.
2: Pain because my mind was, quite, uh, it was in quite a calm state.
0: Right. But it was sitting with unpleasant feeling. Right. I didn't right. express myself. Yes. That well, that that is, uh, um, well, I mean, it's a little bit of it sounds like nitpicking, but because of having the analysis of the human mind in the four mental khandas, mental aggregates, it's important, mm-hmm. you know. So, okay, that's exactly right, because not doing that is what keeps us in the rounds of person-death. Not doing that. Not liking the pain and always liking the pleasure. That's where we keep going and going and going. We're always in that round because the minute we like the pleasure and we don't like the pain, we have already come to the point of wanting one and not wanting the other and clinging to that one and not